Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Three Women, Three Ways. We're the radio station that talks about women in the news, women's uh, events, violence against women, uh, violence against uh, other people. Um, we just talk about whatever we find interesting that impacts women in this world and in this country. And today, we're kind of honored to have a very special guest. Those of you who are familiar with Women's E-News um, will recognize Rita Henley Jensen. She's a founder of Women's E-News and a former senior writer for the National Law Journal, columnist for the New York Times Syndicate, and uh, actually has had more than 30 years of experience in journalism and, uh, as she describes it, an armload of awards. Uh, and some of these awards are, are quite impressive. Uh, she's a survivor of domestic violence and a former welfare mother who earned degrees from Ohio State University and Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And those of you who are not familiar with Women's E-News, get familiar with it. It's a great resource, womensenews.org. Welcome, Rita. Um, oh, it's such a delight today. to be here. It's a delight. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Today, you know, usually we have a single topic, and our guest is a, an expert or someone familiar with that topic. Today we're going to check in with In the News. A lot of things going on in the news as far as uh, women's rights, women's issues, domestic violence, and uh, we're going to cover some of those because I'll tell you, I was, you know, over the last couple of weeks looking through the news, I was kind of going, whoa, you know, <laughs> what kind of a world are we living in here? But let's go to uh, an international story first, one that I think um, it, it has a lot of implications, and you have a lot more uh, experience on uh, Middle Eastern issues than I do. And so can you please tell me how you think about the Saudi Arabia passing the domestic abuse ban for the first time? Well, I, this is very exciting. Um, I've been to Saudi Arabia twice and met with many women there. It's an extraordinary place. When you go out in the desert, you realize why people would want women to to cover their entire body because of the the heat, the sun, and the sandstorms, and it's cold at night. How that came to be required um, is is one of those great mysteries. But nevertheless, so many of the women I, w I was there, when I was there, totally covered, even wearing gloves so that their hands are not exposed. And they are not able to move about freely. They, um, w women I met with complained of not being able to walk their children to school, for example. Um, and they're not able to drive. So how are this how is this level of constraint enforced? And that immediately raises the issue of domestic violence. At this at the same time many Saudi women are highly educated and uh go to undergraduate or graduate schools, uh Bryn Mawr, uh the all female colleges in the US heavily attended by women from the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, uh, as well as schools in London. So they're highly educated. Uh, they have access to the Internet. The Internet is big in Saudi Arabia. They're enormously constrained. So you could see how the tensions in that the nation on the status of women they can't drive, can't walk their kids to school. They have to wear these extremely uncomfortable clothing 24-7 when they're outside of their home. And access to education, it's just across the board. And so clearly violence has to uh, arise from that level of tension and constraint. And so I think this reveals an enormous shift and acknowledgement that the Saudi Arabia, first of all, it won't always be able to depend on oil to be one of the wealthiest nations in the world. It's a finite resource. And secondly, they will need women to enter the labor market 
to continue to uh, maintain their economy, and therefore women have to be a little more, uh, less constrained than they are now. And there's also a movement to permit them to drive, and there's a movement to um, create a special bus service for women so that they can come and go from their jobs. So there's there's a lot of ferment there because of all these factors that I described. So uh, we can assume that since they're they're uh, got interested enough to actually uh, propose the ban or pass the ban on domestic violence, that there's probably a fair amount of it going on, uh, especially with that tension between yes. you know um, expectations and you know I mean it seems to me that if you're exposed to the outside world, it must be harder to keep that stringent control of your personal world. Does that make sense? I would, I, I would think so. Uh, but also, I mean, there is the, the problem of rising expectations in that the, the movement to give women the right to drive started and there was a harsh crackdown, but then the movement just expanded. And once you start saying, oh, this isn't working for us, why can't we drive? Well, you can't drive because you'll become a prostitute. So then all these highly educated, <laughs> you know, they're saying, excuse me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, and, exactly. and the other thing to remember about Saudi Arabia, it is still a kingdom. So what the king says goes. So if the king says that, you know, you shouldn't commit domestic violence, it then becomes a law. However, the law is not written down. That's one of the demands of women in Saudi Arabia is they write down the laws. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so who's king, in charge of remembering the laws? <laughs> Or if well, this king is elderly, so there could be a new king, and it, it, you know, with, yeah. withdraw. It's it's an amazing society that is both very forward looking uh, and very much caught in uh, the early 19th century. So, yeah. wow. wow, wow, and it's they don't write really hard. Down. It's yeah. really hard for cultures that are that entrenched in the past to make that leap, and, and it takes oh, forever. Uh, you know, I mean, it takes forever in cultures that are not necessarily wedded to the past um, as far as morals and, and um, traditions go. It takes years and years and years to change attitudes, and I think it must be harder if you come from such a stringent culture. Am I... I mean, I, 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 they... I would think so. I mean, because uh, the woman who was the leader of the Right to Drive movement, I mean, she was thrown in jail. She lost her job. And her husband, I mean, not her husband, her brother had to flee the country. And she won't tell me where she lives. I don't think she lives in Saudi Arabia anymore, but I can't tell you that for sure because of the level of death threats that she receives. Wow. So, yeah, a death threat for not only for driving, and she had her own driver's license, and she was in charge of security for Aramco, which is the um, the uh, government-owned oil company that supplies, I forget the percentage, but a huge percentage of the oil in the world. So she was in charge of, you know, uh, technology, their tech, which is very high-end security so she wow. was brilliant yeah. and is brilliant and yet um she won't tell me where she lives i not i don't mean the address i mean the country yeah wow wow um <laughs> so yes it's, uh, I, i'm stunned it's i just don't even know how to follow that up <laughs> i mean really um, yeah. except that uh, I would invite you to go. One of the things that happened is they want to build tourism, but the the restrictions on women are so extreme that it's unlikely that um, you would get permission to go. And if you were there, you would have to abide by all the gender restrictions, which means you staying at a, at a expensive hotel won't be able to use the gym or the pool 
or yeah. eat in the general dining room. So it's <laughs> well. How do that? You know, with those kinds of restrictions, I mean, how do women maintain their health? They can't well, just go out I, for walks. Uh, they can't. Yeah, I I asked. Uh, we uh, as part. I was with a, a delegation of journalists. And we were at a medical facility, and uh, I spoke to a public health expert, and I said, what about rickets for women because they're covered all the time? Yeah. And he said he was surprised, but at the same time he said it's a huge problem. Really? Yes. You but never also hear about obesity, that. yeah, I know, right? But it's yeah. it's a problem in Afghanistan, too. But and then obesity as well because you can't move around. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, so, and, and and you know the other uh, health issues uh, that they have a big issue with breast cancer. It's it's why yeah. why would breast cancer be such an issue? Well, you know they have a very American influenced um, lifestyle. And if you are in downtown Riyadh, your selections of places to eat are like oh. Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I oh, think my it's Pepsi. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and so I, I mean, by that I mean uh, I don't want to pick on either one of those in particular. But <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah eat, high fat, high meat, high yeah. processed food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I imagine with those kinds of restrictions, uh, just going to get health care and having an exam and everything would be a challenge for a woman, would it not? It is a challenge when um, the the basic reproductive health care, first of all, it's fraught because of the demands on virginity. Uh, When we met with female medical students, they... um, explained that they had their rotations in different parts of the hospital at different times than the male students. So we're like, oh, and they're like, oh, yeah, but that's fine. And the, but not, So on the one hand, we were delighted that that has been one exception, that women could study medicine. So we were happy about that, but we were a little alarmed that the the classes were not co-ed and and therefore you you're not quite sure that the female medical students are getting the same level and type of instruction that the male students are. Yeah. So yeah, wow. it's it's so it's so throughout the culture that it's it's amazing. It's yeah. and, and 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 scary and yet so many of the women I met were so bright and so articulate and and confident that things were changing and that there were benefits to living in Saudi Arabia as opposed to the West. And they were going to stay there and um, resist well, the maybe, best they could. Yeah, maybe this ban on domestic abuse... Uh, Will help make a difference. I mean, maybe that'll be the what do they call it? The nose under the camel's nose under the tent flap. That it, that it, will, it, it may be. <laughs> will, <laughs> will lead yeah, to I mean, uh, real change. Well, yeah. Well, well, we'll see if somebody compl- right files a complaint. What yeah, happens? that's true. That's true. Having the law be, there and being because able because to remember it. the religious police. Enforce the, the religious restrictions, and there in Islam, there's a there's a uh, you're not supposed to beat your wife. I mean, and you're not supposed to beat anybody. It's it's tenants are nonviolent, even though we are witnessing what we're witnessing on the world stage. Sure. Um, so the re- religious police may come with the civil police if. Uh, a domestic violence complaint is, is made or witnessed by others, and they they call the police. And so, how will the religious police respond? Right? It's like, will yeah. they tell her that it's you know she was not being a good Muslim, and that's why her husband beat her, or will they say, "Excuse me, sir, 
you are not being a good Muslim if you strike your wife. Yeah. Huh. Well, hopefully we'll get some more news as this progresses uh, in Saudi yeah, Arabia. Yeah, I think it's very important. It is. I mean, it's an amazing uh, step, I think. Um, hope If you're out there joining us, uh, we really encourage you to give us a call if you have any questions. The phone number to call in is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. We'd love to have your comments and get your input on these news articles that we're covering. And now, a little bit closer to home, Rita. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have a, yeah, I have a news article that says a former Montana high school teacher convicted of raping a 14-year-old female student. Now, remember that the school teacher is female. So a former Montana high school female teacher was convicted of raping a 14-year-old female student. The student later committed suicide a couple years later. And she was sentenced to 30 days of jail time. And the reason that the Montana judge uh, gave her such a light sentence is he said that the victim was in as much control of the situation as the perpetrator. Well, I mean, what can we say? I think... Uh, one yep. thing well, well, that, that happened in the United States that every public official, every family court judge, every single uh, judge, justice of the peace, police officer, security guard, they all need in-depth education about all the issues surrounding rape. And, and, you know, when you hear a story like this you and somebody who cares about women, you just um, feel, I mean, I do at least, almost physically ill that that this could happen and this could be, um, that, that this could happen. I guess both the sex between the teacher and the student and the student's uh, depression, which is obviously uh, untreated. Yep. yep. Probably, right? Yeah, I and would think as, so. I mean, if, if yeah. they had that kind of a result, if suicide was a result, I would say it was certainly not successfully treated. Yeah. Not successfully treated, exactly. Was did, And only after her death does it become public or was it public before and you know you don't know but one that that it was okay mm-hmm. apparently yeah. um and somebody said it was okay more or less who is a in a position of of authority and that her depression was so extreme and i think um, the, I think the studies that, I mean, over and over again, that sexual abuse in somebody so young leads to extreme depression and much too often suicide. And one of our Women's News favorite authors, uh, Carol Rivers, her brother, she is Irish Catholic living in Boston, her brother was molested by a priest and he eventually committed suicide. So these 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 incidents scar the, many of the victims' lives for a long long time and I don't know if you followed the the scandal at the uh, Manus school which no I'm sorry that's not the name of the school. So it's a fancy uh very elite school in in New York City, and, and there was a big article in the New York Times by uh, a man who said he was molested when he went there 30 years ago, and then, then there, there was this outpouring, and uh, there were later news coverage indicated that a certain number of those children molested at that school committed suicide. So it's... I think it's always really yes the 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 judge 
really appear to have made a terrible decision and a terrible statement. On the other hand, there were other parties at work who maybe did not take it as seriously as they should. Well, the article continues. To, this is from the Huffington Post, by the way. Um, the yeah. article says that the teacher was hired as a business teacher in 2004 at this particular school, and the principal met with the teacher to discuss allegations that he had touched some girls in other schools. And, so the teacher was uh, a he. I thought you said the teacher was a she. The teacher was well, you know, he? I think I made a mistake with that. I think that the article yeah. here is big, and so the teacher yeah, is a male. I didn't think that was true. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so go on. Um, so my mistake there, I'm sorry. Um, but he, there were allegations that uh, he had touched some girls, and the court affidavit said that the uh, school principal went ahead and hired the perpetrator and told him to just keep his hands off all students. Good idea. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you... I, think... uh, <laughs> I mean, really? I mean, that's I like mean, telling really? an alcoholic, I mean, okay, you can work in the bar... Just I don't drink anything. Are, you know. Yeah, I hope um, the principal suffers the consequences of that misjudgment. Yeah. Because, it, I it mean, just, but listen, this is not the only principal. I mean, cardinals yeah. in the Catholic Church made similar uh, decisions over and over again. And uh, in New York, we've had issues uh, of rabbis and others re- similar decisions uh football coaches as we know uh make similar all decisions fairness, though, by if presidents the president of colleges make similar decisions yeah. oh just get all fairness off though Rita if if the principal had not hired this applicant the applicant apparently had not been convicted of anything there were allegations so if the principal had not hired that teacher would the principal have faced some sort of uh, um, legal action for not hiring somebody who'd never been convicted of a crime? Well, why wouldn't you? Uh, there had to be more than one applicant. Well, that's true, but I know as uh, you know, as a business owner, sometimes you have these constraints where this you is have a business to... owner. This is this is a principal of a school. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that article came out a month or so ago about that uh, um, woman teacher. I think it was a California school, and um, her uh, husband. Uh, she'd gotten a protection order from her her husband, whom she, from whom she was separating, and she went to her principal and said, "Okay, this is what has happened. This guy, you know, has no right to be here." And you know, she did what she should to inform the principal. Her two children also attended the school. It was a private school. Well, the ex-husband showed up at the school, and they ended up firing the teacher and dismissing her students from the school because they said, well, they couldn't put the other students at any risk. Well, on the surface of that, I think, what are you talking about? You know, how, right. so you're punishing the victim here? But on the other hand, you know, how would you, you know, they are charged with protecting the other students, and we all know that sometimes... When these things go wonky, the, there are a lot of people hurt. So I don't know. I kind of played devil's advocate with that. What do you think? Well, I th- first of all, I think there's apples and oranges. I mean, okay. one is an applicant out of several, right? And there are many factors go into your decision, and mm-hmm. right. And one is already a staff member, whose yeah. your job is to protect and support, as well as the parent of two students, and. Let's just say she wasn't an employee. Maybe she was a parent of two students who walked her children to school and therefore put the school at risk. There are professionals out there who can tell you what the proper steps are to to protect and, and prevent. And rather than take action to protect the students and an employee, they thought that they could just get rid of the problem, which um, I said again. I, I think that sends a terrible message, and, yeah, and nobody's going to tell that principal again that they're at risk. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. So oh, yeah. You know, based, they're they're just. Oh yeah. Just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He'd be pretty stupid if he mentioned it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or boy, no, oh, anybody boy. mentioned that? You know, that's going to live in the the. The culture of that school. Do you remember that time 
that she yep. told the principal and she got fired and her kids were kicked out? Well, I'm not going to tell them, fill in the blank, yeah. that yeah. I have lupus, that yep. I, right? Or that yeah. I'm HIV positive and I need uh that, you know, I need to be careful about my health and, and what, you know, whatever, or that, you know, I'm coming out or whatever that might be controversial at the moment. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's uh, you know, <laughs> those things are, are, those news stories, I always try to look at both sides, but some of, sometimes it's really tough to look at both sides of an issue. Again, if you'd like to join us, 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. Now we're going to take a little turn in our conversation, Rita, and, and uh I would like to discuss the walk-in vagina. Have you heard about this? No. All right, I missed that one. (laughs) Yes, it's a walk-in vagina, yes. Uh, A 30-year-old South African artist um, was asked to (laughs) produce artwork for an apartheid-era women's jail in Johannesburg, and she wanted to make a statement about women's power, so she came up with a talking vagina. It's a screaming vagina within a space, that once contained women and stifled women. So it's a uh, mocking the space by laughing at it, she said. And visitors enter the uh, 39-foot red padded velvet and cotton uh, canal by first stepping onto a tongue-like padding, then black acrylic wool mimics pubic hair around the opening, and then there's a shrill soundtrack that assaults visitors as they stroll through the tunnel and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it is a work of art. So I don't know. I'm I'm thinking of starting a tour group. We're going to, you know, visit all the walk-in vaginas in the world. What do you think? Well, you said this was in South Africa. Uh, does it say what town it is? Um, in Johannesburg. Johannesburg? Huh? Johannesburg? Yep. yep. Well, I, you know, I was actually just in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I want your life. Can I be you when I, know. I grow up? <laughs> it's, it's, I lead a, a, a privileged life, and I, I've, uh, you know, the opportunity to visit these other nations has just been extraordinary. Um, so, and I wrote a piece when I came back um, about it was time to honor the the women of South Africa. Maybe she read that piece and came up with the idea. But Could be. <laughs> Could be, <laughs> but um, the the situation in South Africa f- for women is so dramatically different than it, than Saudi Arabia. First of all, you know uh, the Olympic athlete who murdered his, uh, uh, I, I think, a companion or partner. Um, and is now facing trial. Well, that was horrific, but at the same moment in time, there was a young African woman, uh, like maybe 18, who was gang-raped and murdered um, and then beheaded. It was disemboweled. Maybe not beheaded, maybe just disemboweled. So these were two horrific murders. Um, in South Africa recently, both of a, uh, uh, I hate to use the term white, but it is, she was very, you know, of the elite white group and uh, a more lower income African. The incredible thing about uh, about South Africa is that women are totally written into the Constitution. And women were very much part of the anti-apartheid struggle. And part of my research there, um, I learned that when the British were in charge in 1914, they declared that African women had absolutely no rights and they were their husband's chattel. Yeah. So... The the abuse of African women in South Africa is remains intense, and the HIV rate. The estimates are that a third of all women who reach age twenty 
are HIV positive, and it's only it's usually with one sex partner. Oh, oh, oh. And in some communities, it's fifty percent. So there's, but on the other hand, women are are rising, right? They have they're very active in the government, they're active in the parliament, so they're active in the business community, and they are constitutionally protected. And there's a lot of, you know, communication and talk about women's rights in South Africa. So it's it's really such a um, a remarkable place to visit if you look at it through that lens. And so this is exciting that we should actually organize a trip to South Africa to see this exhibit and really appreciate, and then go to the Apartheid Museum as well and appreciate what the, what the women of South Africa accomplished. They were very much part of the end of Apartheid and they made sure they were part of the Constitution and the the statements made by the anti-apartheid uh, designers of the the new nation, and just just begin to grasp the dilemma. I think it's not so far from the U.S. in that women have a lot of rights, um, but at the and it's part of our culture. And women are are engaged in business, but they're not in they're not on the boards of directors. Um, we're free to run for election, but we're only 17% of the Congress. So yes and no. And I think the South Africa, it's a little clearer and a little more extreme, but it certainly would um, educate all of us. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, maybe her point in this talking vagina is to get some of those issues out and get people talking about it, and they certainly are talking about it. Yeah, I think think it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And she said, you know, there was What did the talking vagina say? Oh, it just screams. Oh, it just screams. Yes, yes. And um, uh, supposedly the artist said that's in uh, to honor the the women who had been incarcerated there uh, in that uh, former prison. I think it was the same prison that Winnie Mandela was incarcerated in, um, uh. I, I think. So, you know, it has a, a very, you know, long history. I think it was 100 years or so that they used that women's prison. So, yeah, she thought that uh, her uh, yeah. vagina would, would um, well, not her vagina, but her walk-in vagina would um you know bring attention to uh women and and the role that that prison had uh for women and she says that because everybody's required to take off their shoes before they walk into it that um it's making it a, a like a sacred place well isn't that i we got to get on a plane now I, I I would like to. <laughs> you buy the tickets, okay? Cuz I'm broke. <laughs> well, I know because you would lose more sleep than I would. And it let me tell you it's really far. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I I've flown to Tokyo and that one just about killed me, so. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a, it roughly equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. If, if we can have an aside here, you know, um, my daughter lived in Tokyo for a while, and uh, uh, I went to visit her. And and uh, when she came back home, she knew of my interest in and studies in domestic violence, and so she brought me a book that was printed in English, but it was a, a translation from a Japanese book. And the name of the book is Domestic Violence for Beginners. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And it's just an unfortunate title, but <laughs> it's an unfortunate <laughs> translation. Um, but you know, I always, I, I always like to refer to my book on uh, domestic violence for beginners. I always so, thought there was a textbook because <laughs> the excuses you hear <laughs> are the same over and over again, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Somebody should just write you them know, down. It's you know, like when the cops I arrive, said, say this. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? I, I always thought when I was raising them small children the neck that if I could so just... they can cover up the bruises. Yes, uh, yes, yes. You know, yeah. When you go to the ER, say this. Yeah, you know, you know. yeah, exactly, exactly. Tell them you ran into a doorknob, even though you're six foot two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh dear. Well, here let's move to another another issue here, uh, less international, although uh, it does have inter- international implications. Okay, this article yes. is from the Metro West Daily News, and it is an article where an expert says that technology is our best hope to curb domestic violence. Huh. Uh, this gentleman uh, said that um, he. The tools we need are here. They just have to be integrated. Technology is how we do it. And uh, he said that uh, use a device like an ankle monitor to track the whereabouts of potential offenders. I think they're doing that already in some places. Oh, yeah, the potential- they are. If you have an order of protection, well, I, I think it would be not when you have an order of protection but when you've been convicted and you you know yeah. you served your prison time maybe then you get an ankle bracelet but the point is if you have an order of protection um as we know a lot of people honor the order of protection and yet there are people who do not yeah and yeah. i i would think that if you violated an order of protection the penalty would be you you wear an ankle, whatever, and yeah. so that the alert goes off. If you well, get he near, also right. says that. And wait, let's go back to the school. For example, if oh yeah, the, right. Ankle that would have been a perfect guy, You can't solution. come near here. Yeah, exactly. You know that monitor goes off when he's near the school. They call the police, and he's done. You know, he's done. Hopefully, right? you violated yeah, yeah. the order of protection. Off you go. Yeah. So, uh, well, he, I mean, I think that's exciting. Um, well, he also says that he has an idea where the uh, victim would have a monitor and a cell phone, and if the offender, the potential offender, got within a certain distance, the telephone would emit increasingly urgent beeps based on how close that uh, that guy is. And it's, and it's, it's sort of, I don't know how that would work technology-wise. I think the guy would have to have some... Uh, GPS buried under the skin. Well, I think he's talking about those people <laughs> with the monitors, with the ankle monitors. Right. No, no. So, how, would, um, how would the monitor be alerted? That's my only question. But I think whatever we do to save women's lives, um, we should try. And, yeah. And, the, you know, the judge who said it was, you know, 30 days for the rape of a 14-year-old, we can't always rely on the criminal justice system to protect us. Yeah, and, I think you're and, right But there. yet there are uh, technologies that could help protect us. Yeah, yeah. Well, and speaking of not rely, being able to rely on the community, I have a story here where uh, <laughs> I think this one is out of um, New York Times. This is your backyard. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the police labeled a battered woman a nuisance and tried to get her evicted for calling nine one one. See, I, um, I think um, I think that that was a big story in the Times, and it wasn't just about this woman. It was about um, a trend developing in lots of cities, mm-hmm. uh, saying that these homes where domestic violence occurs are a nuisance and they lower real estate values. So well, yeah, if that's you report quite a domestic I've always violence, thought it was a nuisance. Yeah. Right, so <sighs> it's officially a nuisance. And then if you call nine one one uh too many times your landlord can evict you as a nuisance and then get somebody in there who will hopefully for the landlord, not cause problems, not disturb the neighbors, and pay more rent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so um, it's it's not this, uh, the story they cited was in, in Philadelphia. But yes, they made I think it, it was clear. a New York Times article, but it was in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Norristown, Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, so yeah. That, and they decided because she called 911 one too many times that she was a nuisance. But, you know, some states have laws against that. I think Washington State has a law, where I am, um, that a landlord cannot evict based on domestic violence, um, cannot, uh, you know, based on uh, allegations of domestic violence or um, 
there are some circumstances under which they cannot be evicted. A woman cannot be evicted because of that. Well, um, I guess that's that's the issue here. Is which if there is if there, if it becomes a problem, how do you handle it? Do you evict her or do you protect her? Yeah, exactly. Which way are you going to go, community? Yep. And yeah. Norristown, and as you, as you, I'm sure you uh, recall, the spokesperson for Norristown said, oh, well, you know, we're just trying to maintain our community in the peace and quiet. Um, so, fine. <laughs> so, fine. gosh, if somebody's mugged outside their homes, uh, you know, that's not maintaining the peace and quiet. So what do they do, kick out the guy who was mugged? Well, I think um, I think also a, a related issue um, is the families that get evicted if they have a child who's convicted of a drug a drug um, sales or a drug related felony? I think in, even a misdemeanor. Um, if the child was living with grandmother, the entire family gets kicked out, or mother, or siblings. Um, the entire family gets kicked out, and you're like, what? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can again playing devil's advocate here. I can appreciate. Yeah, you don't want drug scary. traffickers in your community, so that's why yeah. the law gets passed. So it's like, okay, we understand that, but you can't kick out the innocent relatives. Um, yeah, exactly. Or it's oh, obviously <coughs> we need to communicate here. Say, yeah, we understand your concern. Yeah. So. Uh, this one, the woman, it was like uh, the third time she called 911 for domestic violence, and her husband got out of jail for beating her up, and he, you know, barged in there, and she tried to keep him out, and and she had no luck, and he insisted on moving in. At that point, she felt like she had nowhere to turn. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. And if you can't call nine one one, you know. Oh yeah, um, she don't dare. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, this is probably a very trivial uh, correlation. But when my my daughter was little, she would eat anything, anything. Um, and I was <laughs> no. always calling poison control, saying, "Okay, she ate buttercups from the yard. What I, you know, uh, what yeah. do I do here?" And uh, I found out that if you call poison control about your child, and there's a, there was a certain number of calls, I think it was four or something like that, then they would send out a, a caseworker to your house. Oh, I, I assume you... you <laughs> and I, I went, oops. <laughs> so from then on, instead of calling poison control, I just called the pediatrician. Okay. <laughs> she well, ate a piece again, of paper. Okay, what do I do now? <laughs> again, if you're if you if you are of a low income person without a private pediatrician and you have a kid like yours, you're in yep. trouble. You're in trouble. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, the assumption is is that if your kid, you know, has eaten something questionable three or four times in a row that you're not supervising them correctly. Um, but let me tell you, those kids can grab things and eat them before you even know, you know. <laughs> and I believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had a dime for every button I found in the diaper. I mean, it's like, button? Where did oh you get goodness. the button? I, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, that's, uh, you know. So it's boy. really, you know, this this conflict, really, to, you know, yes, we want to protect children whose parents aren't doing a good job, and then on the other hand, we don't want to harass parents who have kids like this. So, yeah, exactly. I, I, and, but I, I think too often um, we come down the wrong way. And I definitely, um, we have to do something about the 911 and you're evicted. Yeah, yeah. You know, and this whole notion of punishing the victim, I mean, crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, again, I think we need a little uh, intervention here, a little comic intervention. And I read an article on uh, a website called Brain Flapping, and it's posted (laughs) by The Guardian. um, And the article says, women and yogurt, what's the connection? Apparently, 90% of yogurt is purchased by and eaten by women. Yes. 
So I wonder if, you know. if we, and I don't know about you. Well, let's just get a little raunchy here for a moment. A lot of women use yogurt uh, after they've taken antibiotics uh, uh, to right to yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Get, cure get, get, any uh, 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 an infection in their genitalia, their yeah. vagina. Yeah, so, but you yeah. don't apply it, do you? I mean, don't you just eat it? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you don't use it medicinally. I mean, you just still eat it, right? <laughs> well, you, well, you do both. You eat it to restore yeah. the yang and yang of your intestinal system. But yeah, you can apply it directly to reduce its itching. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and just so you know, that in Punjabi, in Punjabi, yogurt is a female noun. Oh well, that yeah. Well, there you go. So you know, <laughs> they, maybe they already know that. <laughs> and you know this. this and we this could leave blogger. yogurt in the the walk in China. <laughs> um, <laughs> the the uh, uh, thing that you know yogurt consumption is believed by many to help you live longer, and yeah. that would explain why men die younger. They just you know. They just don't eat enough yogurt. Too much beer and not enough yogurt. Exactly. Oh, a T-shirt. see a T-shirt. <laughs> if we could that. convince them to switch their beer and yogurt ratio, they would. Yeah, that them. would be a good study. That would be a good study. Um, <laughs> well, let's see. Back to being serious here for a minute. USC University of Southern California. Oh, yeah. A woman complained that she was raped. And California, so USC uh, officials and campus police um, told her that no rape occurred because her alleged assailant did not have an orgasm. <sighs> well, <laughs> now I'm not a lawyer. Um, you did some a lot of legal writing, I think, but yeah, I, I thought did, yeah. I thought rape was defined mostly by penetration. I didn't know. That orgasm was required for a rape. Well, it's it. It's, <laughs> I don't think it's any. Uh, you know, uh, it's not on the books, and it's certainly not on the books in in California. But well, we have a writer for Women's News. Her name is Wendy Murphy, and she is an activist lawyer, and she loves uh, suing high-profile colleges and universities for not protecting their female students. And this is just a great example. And when you, uh, uh, in preparation for today, I looked up her, one of her more recent pieces. Um, and it, it just goes down uh, describing so many of the elite universities fail to protect their female students. And if and by the way, there was a Supreme Court case uh, way back, uh, maybe twelve years ago, um, that said basically they didn't have to, but they do have to. I mean, there's other laws that say they have to, but they don't. And part of that is the football culture, and that is part of that is just the uh, male-dominated. Um, academic culture or how we treat young women in general or um, I think this judge from Montana exemplifies that but whatever the many many reasons that women complaining of sexual assault are just not are just not taken care of at the major universities or the minor ones Um and again, we talked about suicide after sexual assault. Tremendous uh, consequences for two things: for being sexually assaulted, but by people in authority not taking it seriously, or just even if they take it seriously, trying to put the priority of the school's reputation or whatever before that of safety. Um. I, I think that oftentimes it's the reputation of the school that they're trying to protect. Um, you know, you know they're, they they're required to report these things to the uh, federal well, government. Well, not if he doesn't have an orgasm. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I mean, it clearly and, doesn't count. And uh, what, what part of that is not sexual assault? Right? 
And the yeah, FBI, exactly. by the way, t- recently changed its definition of rape and sexual assault. So oh. there's that. Yeah. yeah, women's news covered the whole thing, but it was a real it was a real uh, triumph. But it hasn't filtered down to USC yeah. yet, yeah. and that that goes back to our need for enormous amount of education. I, th- I think we have to assume that these are reasonable people who are not particularly biased and are just, um, let's just put, I was going to say dumb as a post, but let's just say <laughs> that they're poorly educated. Yeah, yeah, and have no desire to be to more, more completely educated, I think, I'm afraid. I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going, wow, where did this hour go? We've still got about 10 minutes left, and I want to run through some of these pretty quickly um, here, Rita. From the Toledo Blade, Toledo, Ohio, Domestic Violence Tops Forum for Candidates. And one of the candidates running for uh, mayor of Toledo uh, Drew, and this is a quote, Drew groans during a forum Thursday when she said domestic violence victims are causing it themselves by choosing bad mates and not leaving abusive mates. Uh-huh. I think <laughs> the good news, right, is that she got moans instead of applause. Yes. I'm from Ohio. Yes. I'm from Ohio. Yep. <laughs> so, oh, me too. Where are you from? I'm from Columbus. <gasps> well, I'm from up by Lake Erie. I went to Sandusky every summer to go to the lake. Yeah, to Cedar Point. Cedar Point, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, we're practically But neighbors. you didn't go to Columbus every every year. No, no. No. I didn't, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so uh, clearly, you know, you're... you're um, um, really spot-on commentary and observation about some of these people being dumb as posts, I think, applies here. Um, This is clearly a person who has no knowledge, education, or experience with domestic violence. It's like, and, and, you know, why would you say that, you know, while you were running for public office? I think that that's one of the more troubling things. And uh, there was a a member of Congress, a member of Congress who said, Oh, um, we don't, let me see. Oh, we don't need to include rape as a reason that women are entitled to abortion because if you're raped, your body. Oh, you don't get pregnant? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and you're like, huh? Hello, biology, folks. Biology. I know, that's scary. And this is a female member of Congress. So um, we're like. It's just scary. It was like, I know. what makes it, what would make a, a candidate for public office? All right, so you harbor that negative judgment in your heart of hearts. What would make you decide to make a public statement? <laughs> Being where, from where Toledo, that's your, what would make yeah. you decide. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I know people in Toledo, and uh, or, and you know they're wonderful people, and I don't think they would endorse that point of view. So no. Well, clearly, was that was going to get her votes? Yeah. Okay, let's hop to another one. We've bashed Toledo okay. enough, I think. Um, there is an article, um, gosh, where is this from? Uh, Mobile Slate, from Slate, and this is, this is out of huh. uh, Massachusetts, or from, uh, regarding a Massachusetts case. And um, let me see. A plaintiff known as H.T. has sued the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in federal court for forcing her into a long-term relationship with her rapist. Now, what happened is she became pregnant from a rape. Ooh, that's impossible. That's Um, impossible. And and the perpetrator... Right away. Yes, there we go. (laughs) Um, The perpetrator pleaded guilty to rape in 2011. He was sentenced to 16 years of probation... But one of the conditions of probation was that he go to family court and initiate proceedings and comply with that court's orders until the child reaches adulthood. In other words, he's supposed to go to court, declare his paternity, and help raise that child. Uh. And this is the child of a rape. Well, I could see how 
he's required to pay child support. Yep. Well, he he paid $110 per week in child support. He yeah. never saw the child. This was in 2011. He sought visitation. Yeah. He uh, and here here we get to the crux of this whole thing, this whole stuff. He sought visitation, but then offered to withdraw his request for his visitation in exchange for not having to pay child support. Oh, that thing again. Yeah. There's, yeah. Yeah. It's the whole, uh, yeah. That, uh, one of the things that I do, and not very often because it's so difficult, is to go to a conference of battered women who have lost custody to their batterers. Oh. oh. And the batterers, yeah, a lot of it is just court-inflicted brutality oh, yeah. in order to avoid child support. That's why they want custody. They don't want to pay her, yeah. and that's Well, her. and studies show that even when men get custody, they're not the primary caregivers. The new wife right, the or the their mother is the primary caregiver. Right. So it's right. just, and, and but what's then startling the about... the thing is that they don't have to pay child support. Yes, so, of course, which is the whole purpose. Um, and this article uh, also mentions that Massachusetts is one of 31 states in which rapists are allowed to sue for child custody and visitation. 31 states. And with that, I just have to say that on Monday, the 26th, Women's E News celebrated Women's Equality Day. And Carolyn Maloney, our member of Congress from New York City, and now she's reintroducing the ERA and the Equal Rights Amendment and is creating a national network for support. And 31 states, we we need constitutional protection. What yeah. can we say? Yeah. I mean, it just That's, defies common sense. It's I, just um, disheartening. I, yeah. I wrote a book, Rita, called uh, Why Doesn't She Just Leave a New Perspective? on domestic violence and available on Amazon. That's my shameless plug. And uh by Heather Stark. And uh in that uh anthology we have a story from a woman who did lose custody um of her child and that case has just been so crushing and um as a matter of fact it had a very, very bad outcome for the woman and the child and uh I I hope to the next book I'm working on is called Why Doesn't She Just Take Him to Court? And it's uh, stories about how women have been abused, hurt, violated by the court system uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with an abusive spouse. So, it's a, so it's you may terrible... want to come to this convention. It's, uh, I mean, this conference. It's, it's in. It's always in January in upstate New York, so you'll get to see some real snow. <laughs> real snow. <laughs> I haven't seen that since I left Ohio. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, and, um, uh, so, but yes, I mean, yes, the battered women losing custody, rape victims losing custody to their rapists. It's like how, this defies common sense. Yeah, I mean, who and would it goes want back a to are are we believed is is what we say taken seriously, and that goes back again to the rape victims on campus. Yeah, who are yeah, not protected. Exactly. It's like. Excuse me, what happens to us is important, and I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. What part of this it's, it's, don't you get? Exactly. Well, just real quick, because I think this one is so important and we are so running out of time. Um, Yale has officially declared non-consensual sex not that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah. They they don't use the word rape. They've reclassified it as non-consensual sex, and it's punishable by written reprimand. I mean, we've been talking about that. I mean, that's the the same thing, right? It's, Yale. It, you know, Yale. It, I mean, hello. The elite at USC or Yale, Harvard, same problem, maybe not as blunt, but that, and it's really the young women, and there's many young women who are really becoming very active um, on, on this issue, and that's exciting. Um, it's you know, there's no way they can put up with this. So uh, they will have. They're going to have to fix it. I don't know how they're going to fix it, but they have to fix it. Well, they have to. Certainly, the women of uh, the young women, uh, the students at Yale have the resources. And by the way, the it was the women at Yale who brought the first lawsuit that gave us access to birth control. 
Grinwald versus I forget who. Yeah. <laughs> Griswold. Wow. And, well, uh, um, yeah. Rita, I usually end our show with a quote, and I had a hard time finding an appropriate quote today, but I will uh, go with one from Representative John Conn from Michigan. It's not enough for women to speak out on the issue. For the message to be strong and consistent, women's voices must be backed up by men. Thank you so yes. much for joining us this week. Join us next and week. And tune Rita, in thank you to womenbnews.org. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Join us next Bye-bye. week. Bye-bye. Bye.